0: I'm diverting from our study of our statement of faith to uh, come to this portion of Scripture as we observe the Lord's table tonight to remind ourselves of the work of our Savior. Some have called uh, Isaiah the the fifth gospel because there's so much of our Savior and His work here. Could there be any more beautiful portion of Scripture in all the Bible than the chapter that we've heard read to us? I want us to look there just in verse 4. Surely He hath borne our griefs. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. I heard of the testimony recently of a young man in college, and it was a a liberal college. The teacher of the Old Testament was a a Jewish man, uh, and he uh, asked the class, which was divided. It was half Jewish young people and uh, the other half uh, all kinds of different ones. He asked them, as they read this chapter, who is this talking about? And the class was absolutely silent. There was a gr- large <clears throat> group who did not believe in the, the, the Savior of the, the Scripture at all, and so they wouldn't say anything. And those who were Jewish, of course, did not testify that this was the Messiah. And the man who was teaching the class, who was a Jewish scholar, said, of course, this is talking about Jesus Christ. Well, we see a portrait drawn here, the most vivid of colors of our Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Holy Spirit take these words and paint them upon our hearts this Lord's Day evening. Our gracious Father, we see our Savior in these words. How, how could we not see Him? The beauty and the horror. The glory and the gore. His work so gloriously portrayed by the, the pen of the, the writer moved along by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, as we look toward this, this portrait, may we not be gawkers like so many were the day at Calvary, who's sitting down and watched him there. Oh, Lord, may we see your work here and show it to us afresh and anew. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. If it had not been for our sin, there would never have been a place called Mount Calvary calvary was caused by the sin of human beings as you read the verses before us you cannot help but notice the repetition of the personal pronouns our griefs we did esteem him not our transgressions our iniquities our peace all we like sheep we have turned to everyone to his own way the iniquity of us all It is all about us, isn't it? In these verses, the Holy Spirit clearly talks about we, us, and our. But more than that, He paints a picture of Him. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He always draws attention to our lovely Savior. He never speaks of Himself, but always speaks to the second person of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to Me. Christ is central in these verses. You would have to cut out this chapter from the Bible to say that it does not. If it had not been for Him, there never would have been a place called Calvary. We see these verses here that that point out His work on our behalf. If you are going to memorize any portion of Scripture, surely this ought to be at the top of the list to rehearse it over and over in your heart and mind when you're fearful or when your sin is great or when the Savior seems far away. These verses will bring Him near. First of all, as we examine this text, we see the reality of our Lord's sufferings. Our Lord was born and came to this earth to bear the burden of our sins. What a burden that is. We saw this morning the verse, Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Mankind is toiling under the weight of their sin. Most don't really realize it. They think I've just got a bad lot in life, or if I could just get a break, or if I could get a new job, or if I had people who liked me, or if I had another marriage, or lived in another place, or another time. It's always something, but they don't realize it is the weight of their sin that is crushing them to the earth. Our Lord was bearing our burdens at Calvary. Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We see Him carrying the cross. They laid upon His back, beaten. The Scripture tells us His visage was so marred you could not tell He was a man. No portrait painter has ever pictured Calvary as it really is. We could not gaze upon such a picture as the Holy Spirit describes for us here. Isaiah proclaims it, Surely, surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He carried them all the way from heaven's glory to a manger that was fit for animals and not the King of kings and Lord of lords. He carried it throughout His youth as people murmured behind His back about His illegitimate birth. He carried it throughout His ministry here on earth, the choosing of those simple men who became His disciples. He carried it all the way through the mock trial and to Calvary and to the tomb and then His ascension on high. As far as the east is from the west, as far as the north is from the south, hath He removed our sins from us. Our sins have been buried out of the sight of both God and and man. The hymn writer said, O Christ, what burdens bowed thy head? Our load was laid on thee. Thou stoodest in the sinner's stead, bore all of it for me. A victim led, thy blood was shed. Now cloudless peace I see. A missionary was driving along in a pickup truck when he saw a poor, feeble man carrying a heavy, heavy, unbelievably big load for his tiny frame. It was an area where vehicles were, were, had rarely, were rarely seen, and, and this man had probably never seen one in his life. The missionary stopped and asked the man if he wanted to get in and, and ride. In and the amazement on the man's face, he had never dreamed that such a thing would happen for him. And the, the poor man climbed on the, the back of the pickup truck, and, and off they went. And a few miles down the road, the, the, the missionary looked back, and he saw the man standing in the back of the truck still carrying his heavy load on his back and trying to keep his balance, holding on to his burden with one hand and holding on to the truck with the other. It was struggling as they bounced down this road. And the driver stopped and he asked the man, Why don't you put your heavy burden down in the truck? And the man replied, Oh, I didn't know I could do that. So many are carrying their burden around. When the provision has been made, the power of Christ will remove your burden and your sin. We praise the Lord that He is able to carry us and to carry that heavy weight of sin. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to His cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. That's why we can sing, It is well with my soul tonight. Our Lord didn't come just to bear the burden of our sin, but He also came to bear the blame. Of it. We did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. The word afflicted means humbled, degraded. What a group of words used here to describe the precious Son of God. Stricken, afflicted, smitten, humbled, degraded, suffering from a stroke from God's own hand. The Jews had a horror. If you read through the Old Testament, they had a horror of what they called the stroke of God. It denoted the horrible, incurable disease of leprosy. Like the time when King Uzziah was smitten with leprosy for intruding into the temple and when Gehazi was stricken with Naaman's leprosy. To them, nothing worse could happen, but something worse has happened. The entire human race is under the stroke of God by reason of the leprosy of sin. It is an incurable disease, an incurable situation that that passes upon all men, for all have sinned and all are born into sin. At Calvary, unbelievably, miraculously, amazingly, in a way that we cannot fully understand, God put the stroke that was on our back and that was our lot, and He put it on Jesus Christ. We cannot imagine how He suffered when He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God. Such sufferings beyond anything that we could think of or imagine. But not only do we see how real Christ's sufferings were, we also see here the reason for His sufferings. Verse 5 plainly tells us He was wounded. Why was He wounded? Why did He have to go to Calvary? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. That word transgression is one of several words in the Scripture that is used in the Bible to describe sin. One def- definition of the, in the Bible of sin means simply to miss the mark. We just don't measure up. We miss. The picture is of falling short of, of uh, a desired goal. And that uh, we, we just don't make it. But the word here for transgression literally means to revolt. Imagine, it's one thing just to miss the mark. You still have missed it. You're still a sinner. It's one thing uh, to do that. It's another thing to lift your puny fist to the Creator God of heaven and to revolt against Him. I will have my way. I will exalt my throne above the throne of God. I will be the boss of my life. No one will tell me what to do. I can make my own choices. That's what we do in transgression. Transgression is knowing God's law and still deciding high-handedly to have it our own way a sinning against lawful authority. Man is in a condition of revolting against the authority of God. The angry crowd jeering at Jesus said, We will not have this man to reign over us. And that's what every sinner does in one way or the other, even though they might not come out and say, I will live my life, I will not have this God, this Christ to reign over me. The Bible declares that Jesus did always those things that pleased His Father. That can be said of none of us. It can only be said of Jesus Christ, He who did only those things that pleased His Father. Adam and Eve and all their descendants are known by their, in our, defiance of God's will. But God the Son was wounded for us, taking our place that we might take His. Verse 5 tells us He was bruised for our iniquities. Now, that's another word in the scripture for sins, and this one is even a more putrid word. It means perverseness. Now, when we say something is perverted, the most horrible acts of mankind come to mind. We think of Hitler's atrocities. We think of sexual perversion. We think of the, the harming of the molestation of little children. We could go on and on. That's the word that comes to mind. That's what our, the word iniquities mean. And when you put it, look in that context, he was bruised for our perverseness. That which drives us opposite of God's holiness. We get that ugly, despicable word pervert from it. It means bent or crooked to be off course. I was with a carpenter the other day, and he was going through a stack of of two-by-fours. And he would pick them up and eyeball them. And he says, there's not a straight one in the bunch. Every one of them is crooked. And I said, that's just like us. We're all crooked. We're all sinners. We're all perverse. There's not a one in the bunch that's straight. We get no clearer picture of how perverse mankind is. The most vivid picture of that is at Calvary. When we gaze at Calvary, when we read the record of the gospel writers, we see the crowds gather there as if they were going to a sporting event. The Bible says, sitting down, they watched him there. Oh, they, they took a seat. Let's look at this. We've never seen anything quite like this. Let's see. He called, he performed miracles. Let's see what he can do to get himself out of this. The, the horrible insinuations, the railings against our Savior, stripped there, naked in front of them. The gawking eyes of the created at the creator, jeering and leering and and scoffing him to scorn. Sitting down as if they were at a sporting event to watch the sinless Lamb of heaven, to jeer at him, to jab at him, to spit on him, to abuse his body and to watch him die. We were in that crowd Look closely as they gather there. Look closely as we read the list. You'll see your face in that jeering crowd. The word for bruise there can also be rendered crush. Jesus was crushed beneath the unbelievable weight of humanity's sin. Not only did the crowd bruise Him that day, but He was also bruised by God His Father. Now, amazingly, this has been called into question by some denominational circles today. They want to fall short of saying that God poured out His wrath on God the Son. But I want you to know how clear it is. He was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace. Surely the Lord was pleased to bruise Him. Not in some perverted, wrong way. But God the Father devised a way that our sins could be forgiven and we could go free. The pleasure was in the church that God had bought for His Son, the Bride of Christ, His people that He had chosen from the foundation of the world. It pleased Him to present this church, His glorious church, this Bride, to His Son. Often the Romans, when they would hammer a victim's feet to the cross, they would drive the nail through the hills, The Bible says in the first mention of the gospel, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that the seed of the woman, referring to Christ, shall bruise thy head, speaking of the serpent. He will render him powerless. To wound the victim in the head is to to render them absolutely unable. And in fact, you see the old portraits, the old masters, when the victor will often have won the battle and he'll have his, his foot on the neck, Of the one that's been uh, beaten. And so that is the picture. Satan is wounded in the head. Speaking of the serpent. And thou, the serpent, the devil, shall bruise Christ's heel. He certainly did, didn't he? How accurate the scripture is when those Roman soldiers who had no knowledge they were fulfilling scripture. When they took one of those big, horrible, heavy spikes and drove it in our Savior's heels. The Lord was bruised by Satan, who used the willing hands of wicked men to do it. Jesus was crushed by the weight of our sin and by the the weight of the sin of the whole world. He was crushed when God Himself forsook Him. In those tormenting hours when darkness covered Calvary and the whole country, and again the hymn writer said, Oh, make me understand it, help me to take it in. What it meant for thee, the Holy One, to take away our sin. The verse, looking forward to Calvary, prophesies the chastisement of our peace was upon him. Not just chastisement, punishment, but the chastisement, the horrible removal of God's judgment from us was totally laid on God the Son. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And that's the the great question that Lucifer asked Eve. You'll not surely die. But the Bible says that the soul that sinneth, it shall die. It's an eternal separation from God in hell something so horrible we cannot even comprehend eternity, let alone eternity, and absolutely cut off from God and His kindness, the smile of His face, the the sunshine of His glory, all the beneficent things He sends our way, cut off, forever cut off, from all love, from all peace, from everything good and, and wonderful, cut off eternally in the horrors of hell. Some might surmise then that if our punishment Apart because of our sin, is eternal punishment in hell. How could it be then that God the Son suffered all of that in just a few hours? I thought you said, preacher, that hell would never end and that it would be eternally go on. Should not then Christ have been forever locked away in hell because of us to pay for the debt of our sin? How can it be that he would hang there for just a few hours and then to satisfy the demand of God, the soul that sinneth, it shall die? The very word die means eternal death and cut off. Oh, we forget the inestimable worth of the one who hung there. He was not a man who alone who hung and died in our place. it was not a sinner dying for a sinner. He was God. God, the Son, did in just a few hours what it would take in eternity for all of us to endure. That's what He suffered. The pain of that eternal death was nailed to Him in just those few short hours. Oh, never underestimate the worth of the sacrifice in our place. We notice the word for peace here is our peace, individual peace, peace for me. If you could put a price on the most sought-after commodity of mankind, it would be, I think, this condition of peace. We often say, I just want peace and quiet. We want peace in our homes. We want to be at peace with one another. It's such a rare thing, isn't it? How short-lived is peace? Is there any place on earth, is there, there's hardly a place on earth where there is peace. And if it is, it's just for a short period of time. Wars and rumors of wars since the beginning of time, since the first murder after the rebellion of the first mother and father and the first murder in that home down to this very hour in this wonderful city of ours that we love so dear. All kinds of things have gone on this very day that we wouldn't even know of. Horrible, despicable things all because of sin. But think of this peace that people yearn for. They give themselves, striving after, trying to find peace. And they look for it here, and they look for it there. But the Bible says, He came for our peace. It refers to us as individuals. And while Christ died for the sins of His people, your name is there. You are there individually for your forgiveness of sins, for your peace. Colossians 1 verse 20 says, And having made peace through the blood of His cross... By Him to reconcile all things to Himself. The chastisement, the punishment that we should have taken, that brings peace, was laid on Jesus. Peace with God means that war is over. You don't have to reconcile friends... But we were in enemies of God and at war with him. And so Christ Jesus came to make us right with Him. How do we describe our salvation? Being made right with God, being made cleared of blame, being made right with Him. But Isaiah tells us more. Oh, he doesn't stop there. He paints a full glorious picture. I took art for about fifteen minutes and, and, and took and painted two portraits. One, my wife has hanging in the living room, and I I threatened to every day I see it. I said, why is that hanging there? The other one was unfinished. And I wanted to put a sign under the great unfinished work by Chris Lamb, but it's it's so pitiful. It's just got a big white hole in the bottom where leaves and trees and flowers should be, and it's tucked away in a closet downstairs, never to see the light of day. I don't even know how to finish this great unfinished piece by Chris Lamb. It, it, it means that his the work is finished, it is completed. Isaiah tells us, by His stripes, we're healed. Christ's work on the cross has made possible for us one day, as Philippians 1, 3, verse 21 promises, for us to have a body likened to His glorious body. It gets more and more wonderful, doesn't it? Not only are sins forgiven... And the eternity of death forever separated from God is removed from us. And then we find out that one day those of us in Christ not only are made right with him and have our record clear and we're justified, but we'll get a new body one day. Praise the Lord. (laughs) Just look in the mirror and say, praise the Lord. This one day will be made right. It'll be made new. It'll be like it's supposed to be. During His earthly ministry, our our Lord healed multitudes of people. I love to read the gospel records where He reached out and touched people who were hopeless. The woman with the issue of blood. The raising of people from the dead. Those miraculous gifts of healing that He alone could do as the Creator. Sight restored to people who'd never seen Uh, and parents who had their children raised to life. We spent a great deal of time in our prayer meeting tonight praying for some of those situations and we longed to to rejoice in hearing the healing of those that we prayed for. He never failed to heal completely. And he never charged a fee for doing it. It didn't matter if the person was blind from birth. There was no case too hard for him. I've heard the testimony of Joni Erickson Tata, who it was paralyzed in a uh, diving accident as a teenager. And she, in her testimony, you ought to listen to it. She's a remarkable, remarkable woman. And she said one time she went to a Catherine Kuhlman uh, healing crusade. And there she was. She had them take her right where she couldn't be missed. She said, They never looked at me, they never came my direction. No one ever asked me to even get in the line. I was so desperately hoping that that something could be done. Jesus never passed a case that was too hard for him. There was no case that he couldn't heal. It wasn't healing a pain that nobody could see or some condition that no one had account of. These were people. The, the blind man said, "You can say whatever, whatever. All I know is I was blind, but now I see. And you all knew I was blind from birth. There's nothing you can explain this away." It's clearly the creative miracle of the Son of God. That's what the Lord does. He, he did not heal everybody. I've heard some preachers say he, he healed everybody He came across. That's not what the Scriptures say. But He never failed to those that He did heal to heal them completely. It, it, at the pool of Bethsaida, He picked out one crippled man in His sovereignty to heal him. In John chapter 5. Isaiah's prophecy here tells us of Christ. Healing ministry. And some have taken this to mean just about anything they wanted it to mean. But this we know. Our ultimate healing. Let me ask you this. Every person that Jesus healed, what happened after they lived their life? Even those our Lord touched and healed died, did they not? Lazarus, that was raised from the dead, died again. I'm told, I've read in a commentary where there is a place... Uh, uh, and, uh, over there in Turkey or somewhere, where it was reported that Lazarus later ministered. And there's a marker at a tomb that says that he, it gives to the effect, I'm not quoting exactly right, he that died once died again. It has the record that this was the one that Jesus raised. Even Lazarus died. He's not with us today. And so we even those miracles in his earthly ministry were temporary to a degree. But our ultimate healing will be a sinless resurrected body like his. Now, we have people here tonight who are undergoing tremendous suffering in your body. And I'll tell you one thing. If I had the gift of healing, I'd lay my hand on every one of you. But I can't do that. I can point you to our Savior who not only will heal the soul, but he will equip us and give us grace In this life, during this time, we praise the Lord, He does heal. Please don't misunderstand me. He does heal, doesn't He? He doesn't heal every case just exactly like we might would like for it to be in this life. But I love what John wrote in his first little epistle, chapter 3 and verse 2. Tuck this away when you are discouraged at your physical situations. And if you're not there, you'll get there one day, trust me. It does not yet appear what we shall be. But when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. Oh, praise His name. Lastly, we see the result of Christ's sufferings. What did it accomplish? Look there in verse 6. All we like sheep. ...have gone astray. What a pitiful picture. Sheep just go on their own way. Sheep are not leaders. They can't lead each other. They can't lead themselves. They will always go astray because they're sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone... ...no one is exempt... ...everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the heart of the message of the whole Bible. If you were to ask me to take you to a verse that tells the whole story of the heart of the message of the whole Bible, we would go to verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 53. It's how God sees our problem. You see, we view our problem solely from our perspective. And but here we see it from from God's perspective. We've gone astray. Turned one and all to our own way, and we'll keep on going our own way unless God intervenes. God calls this waywardness iniquity, referring to our bent, our proclivity, our bent toward sin and toward our own agenda. And there's not one of us exempt, no matter how nice and sweet you may appear. In your heart, you're a sinner. And some people don't sin as bad as they could, but doesn't mean they wouldn't if they could get by with it. And they may have sinned on the tapestry or on the video of their own heart and mind, even though they would never dare outlive it out in front of others. And if they knew they could get by with it, then people would uh, often do more than what they do. It doesn't mean because we're depraved that we all are hatchet murderers or on death row tonight. But all of us have gone our own way, and we would continue to go worse than that if left to ourselves. We are drawn away by our lust and our rebelliousness like a magnet. I have a little paperclip container on my desk that I've had since I was a high school student. And it's on my desk in there. My grandchildren love to, to pull it. They pull up one and another one comes up and they'll connect and the, and I was trying to describe them the force of a magnet why this paper clip was being pulled even though it wasn't touching the mag- magnet. The power that a magnet has to draw. And our sin draws us away like a powerful magnet. Sheep are not strong. They're not quick. You don't run sheep in a race. You may run dogs or horses or other things, but you won't, you won't have a sheep race. You'll watch, you'll watch paint dry quicker than you'll watch a, a sheep race. In fact, they'll just scatter. They wouldn't race if you put them in a race. They're not smart. Now, this is what the Lord calls us as his people. We're, we're sheep. So none of us can glory in anything. All we can do is glory in the shepherd, can't we? He saved us, he put us in the fold, he feeds us, he keeps us right. If we go, who how could we brag on ourselves as sheep? We're dumb and weak and rebellious. What is there to brag on? Who has credentials among sheep? We can brag on our savior though. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. The sheep's nature is to wander aimlessly, just looking for the next best meal next best piece of grass to to eat, to wander away from the flock and the fold and has no conception of danger that there's a wolf there or a crevice or a ravine, doesn't care, wouldn't think about it, just aimlessly going their own way. It's instinct to find its way home. If you removed a sheep just a few blocks away from the flock, it couldn't find its way. If its life depended on it to get back to the fold. It is the, at the mercy of nature. In the late 1800s, the evangelist D.L. Moody and his song leader, Ira Sankey, it's amazing, Ira Sankey could accomplish at the Metropolitan Tabernacle what no other man could do. Charles Spurgeon loved D.L. Moody, and when D.L. Moody came to preach at the Tabernacle, he brought Ira Sankey and Iris Sankey was the only one at that time who played a musical instrument, an organ, in the, the tabernacle. And he played and accompanied himself as he, as he sang. And they were on their a, a, a train together, traveling to their next meeting. And, and Moody was thinking about his sermon. And, and Sankey was reading a magazine because he constantly published songbooks. in fact all of the moody's work practically was built off the songbook royalties that Ira sankey published and and so they were a strong uh duet a duo and a powerful force for evangelism for in the, the last two, uh, the 1800s and sankey was reading a magazine and he was clipping a, a, a poem that he read by elizabeth Clefane and it caught his attention it was just a moving poem and, and he clipped it out. He put it in this top pocket. And uh, that, that night, as after Moody preached in a large hall, he preached on the good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. And at the invitation, he called Sankey up on the stage and asked him to sing something appropriate to the message. Sounds like our former pastor he would do. Uh, he'd said, sing this, Brother Lamb. I'd never sing the song half the time. Hey, well, I want you, the trio to sing this at the end of the service, and we'd sing it. And I, I've often, when I thought of Sankey, Moody turned to him and said, I want you to sing a song about the shepherd and his sheep. You know, how, how many songs do you know in the songbook that would fit that uh, situation perfectly? But Sankey had happened to clip that poem and put it in his, his, his pocket. But the amazing thing about it, the absolutely astounding thing is about it, he, put, he pulled it out and put it up on the little portable organ And uh, he suddenly remembered that that poem, and he prompted on the organ, sat down, and he said by his own testimony, the music came to him immediately, and he sang it on the spot. The last verse of that beautiful song that we have sung here from time to time, the 90 and 9, says, Up from the mountains, thunder-driven, and up from the rocky steep, there arose a cry to the gate of heaven, Rejoice! I have found my sheep. And the angels echoed around the throne, Rejoice, for the Lord brings back His own. Rejoice, for the Lord brings back His own. I'm glad to report to you tonight that the Good Shepherd finds us in salvation and brings us to the fold. And if we ever get out of the fold, you know what? He will come after every single one of us. He won't let us go. Do you know what he says? My sheep, what a personal pronoun. They're mine. You think he'll lose one of his sheep? Well, he might as well lose his right arm as to lose one of us. We're members of his body. My sheep, what? They hear my voice. They know the voice of the shepherd. And when he speaks, they come. They will not follow the voice of another. Rejoice, for I have found my sheep. Isaiah tells us how the Lord solves the problem. Verse 6, the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity. Of us all. What a transaction. Tis done, tis done. The great transaction's done. I am my Lord's. And He is mine. God transfers all of our sin. From all of us. And lays all of it. On the Lamb of God. The Lord Jesus Christ. That's how He does it. That's how He can be both just And the justifier. He never violates one of His holy attributes, never breaks a law because the Son of God bore our sin. The perfect, spotless, sinless Son of God who came and took our place. That's how He does it. There's no other way. And for those who lean on the devices of man and religion to save them, for those who think they could work their way to heaven, not by works of righteousness which we have done... But according to His mercy, He hath saved us. How could you add anything to the perfect work of the perfect Son of God? All we can say is, Hallelujah. What a Savior. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Hallelujah. What a Savior. Thank you for taking our sin and that our iniquity is laid upon you. We pray as we partake of this Memorial Supper that you'd remind us, The great price that was paid for our sin. We pray in Jesus' name.